This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Michael Pavlich. Uh, this morning in our profile piece on ABC Overnights, we're talking about uh, the life and times of the wonderful musician Nick Drake, singer-songwriter who passed away at the age of 26. Only recorded three albums, but his legacy has been felt ever since. Hugely influential artist amongst many songwriters that came after him. But his legacy has been a bit shrouded by mystery because the family and friends, they weren't too keen to open up and were pretty protective of the Nick Drake legacy. But that's all changed now because an author called Richard Morton Jack has written what uh, we believe to be the definitive life story of Nick Drake. And he joins us on the radio this morning. Good morning, Richard. Hi, Pav. Hey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. A labour of love. I know this took you a long time, and it's a rather big book. There was a lot around the Nick Drake story that there's this mystery that cloaks the whole Nick Drake history. Uh, and it looks like you've demystified and debunked a whole lot of the stuff that uh, that had been previously written about Nick. So well done to start with. But uh, was... Thank you so much. I mean, I, there was a sense of, of trying to tread softly on people's dreams because... The mystique is a big part of why people are drawn to him and why they enjoy his music. And if you pull back the curtain too far, you, you run a risk of getting in the way of that private relationship people form with the music and, and then with him. And, and so I wanted to be as accurate as I could, but I didn't want just pointlessly to demystify him. It was a balance. 50 years we've had to sort of digest the Nick Cave legacy, Nick Cave, the Nick Drake legacy. Um, <laughs> Why do you think he still remains relevant as, as far as an influence on, on many emerging artists and many songwriters? I think, of course, his image is very powerful along the lines of James Dean or Kurt Cobain or, or you name it. Any um, attractive, very gifted young person who dies young is, is going to be immortal. Um, so there's that kind of superficially. But more deeply, I think as time has gone by and, and the dust has settled on a lot of the culture from the 60s and 70s, it just seems to be more and more the case that people engage with his music on a personal level very powerfully and a lot of artists of that era who sold millions of records um, at the time uh, are now far less meaningful to subsequent generations and Nick's music just does speak to people and I think that's because it's quite enigmatic as he was it doesn't have cut and dried meaning people don't necessarily have the same interpretation of his work so there's a lot of space for a very strong personal engagement with it which i think young people especially find really powerful do you think if he hadn't have passed away at a young age we would be talking about him now in such revered terms it's really hard to say i suspect as i indicated a minute ago that that yeah his early death has created this um forever young image which obviously does help with um marketing him and and so on and there's a certain sort of morbid glamour to that but um I, I think his music is sufficiently strong to reach an audience to have reached an audience irrespective of that but if he'd gone on to make awful albums you know using an electric keyboard or something people <laughs> might have you know a synthesizer or whatever i mean it's so hard to tell yeah. that might have demystified him and uh you know the, the dream really would have been that his mental illness would have um cleared up as far as possible and he'd have gone on to have a happy and fulfilled life and that music making would have remained part of it um but that's such a big what if um i i, I don't know my opinion on that is no more valuable than anyone else's it's, yeah. it's obviously 
it's obviously just in the realm of speculation there. But I mean, you talked about his mental illness. In many ways, that was the same place that he was drawing from his, his creative energy from as well. So it's a bit hard to separate that from the, the man himself and, and his art. I, I entirely agree. Um, and, and it's difficult to work out where the line is that, that his creativity existed independently of his mental illness mm. um, and when his mental illness started because um, he was such a private person that his friends never quite felt they knew him and they all assumed that other people knew him better. And he did keep his friendships and, and most of his relationships in different boxes. So when people who knew him in different ways or in different spheres finally encountered each other after his death, they were all rather surprised to find that none of them felt they knew him that well. Um, and therefore, no one had much of an idea of exactly what was going on in his head at any given time. So that sense of enigma was was always there. Yeah, look, uh, the sense of enigma has surrounded him pretty much. And so in amongst that, and this often happens when uh, artists die at a young age and we're left to live with their material and their legacy and there's all this mystique around them, that often the facts get a little bit twisted up and the story that ends up emerging quite some time later is not uh, you know, nowhere near uh, accurate. Or there's, a, there's a lot of artistic licence that has been used by writers and people remembering their lives. Um, this was certainly the case with Nick Drave. I think it was uh, probably... Uh, um, uh, you know, influenced by the fact that Nick Drake's, Drake's family closed ranks and didn't really want to talk to many people about it. And same with his friends. So it allowed for this space of, with all these stories about Nick Drave to sort of fester uh, and become almost like urban myths. Uh, a lot of them you've uncovered they're not actually not actually correct. One of them is that he he suffered from stage fright, which I had always believed and read, but you say that's not the case. Yes, I. I think what what happened was that because there were so many gaps between known facts, people joined up the dots but missed out a few of the numbers in between, and you ended up with a picture that was just about recognisable but a bit messy, yep. um, if you convoluted a, a metaphor. And um, I think what I wanted to do was was just sharpen up that picture as much as possible, join up the other dots properly. And... Um, a lot of the assumptions that previous writers had made or, or had been forced to rely upon um, weren't actually accurate. So, yes, stage fright is one. Nick, the, the standard version of Nick's performing career was that he only ever did a handful of gigs. They typically were in completely inappropriate venues where people shouted at him and threw pints of beer around and... Uh, he fled in in complete terror and gave up. It was obviously a much more nuanced picture than that. And anything in life, of course, if you actually get close to the subjects and get close to the people who were actually there, is going to have more nuance to it than uh, any superficial reading would would indicate. But um, yes, I, I, all of Nick's friends more or less said the same thing, which is that he he knew he was good. He was completely reliable as a player. He never fluffed notes or. or um, improvised and got a bit stuck and couldn't get back out i mean he was like a, a human metronome with his timing and his efficiency and um i think the problem was that he wanted to have it both ways you know he wanted people to listen to his music he wanted people to engage with what he was creating but he didn't want to go out and flog around clubs on 
you know, sleeping on people's floors and mm. getting trains up in the middle of nowhere. Um, not just because he thought he was above it. I think it was also because he recognised the futility of it, because his personality wasn't the sort that was going to get through to a crowd who had never heard his music before. He didn't have the sort of energy where he could command a room and tell people to shut up and listen and crack a gag or respond to a heckler and i think he quickly realized that he wasn't achieving anything by doing this apart from feeling an increasing sense of, of failure um but his mental illness became much more acute in that sort of one year really where he was giving live performances and so to to unravel where mm. one began and the other ended or, or vice versa is is really difficult if not impossible I uh, I have heard the quote you mentioned before about, I think it was from his producer, who said Nick Cave played guitar and he was like a human metronome. His timing was unbelievable. And you could certainly hear that in some of his picking patterns. Uh, and for people not aware of Nick Drake's music, it is very much a, it's a, a nylon string acoustic guitar picked in a very... Uh, uh, unique style so it's not like a flamenco picking or a, a latin picking it's a, this particularly nick drake sort of style he used a lot of different tunings and some of his recordings two of his recordings in fact were just him and his guitar so it's amazing to think that an artist could just do an acoustic recording and for it to be so influential and still be relevant 50 years later i mean it was his music was very stripped back wasn't it Yes, increasingly so. Um, his third and final full album was called Pink Moon, and he knew that he wanted that just to be him and his guitar well before he did it. It wasn't a whim of his to record it um, without arrangements on. Um, he'd already made two albums with strings and horns and drums and electric guitars backing him. And I think he felt he'd done that and that he had stockpiled some songs, some of which dated from earlier than those albums ready for what he knew was going to be a solo acoustic guitar and voice project um the myth is usually that he made pink moon in that style purely because he hadn't liked the way that he was presented on his first two albums but in fact he was given an enormous amount of freedom to make his albums as he wished and um Pink Moon was just his next creative step, but unfortunately it coincided with a really serious nervous breakdown and uh, he never really recovered his equilibrium. So Pink Moon stands as a final statement of sorts from him, a final complete statement. Um, and um, you're absolutely right, it is very unusual, I think, for a, an album that is that unadorned to have this reach and, and for people to draw such um, repeated sort of pleasure and meaning from it. And I think part of the credit for that should go to the engineer, John Wood, who recorded it in yeah. London with Nick, because he was a master of microphone placement. And I think he understood that because this recording was going to be simple, it needed to have a huge amount of presence. So he took enormous trouble with various different microphones all over the place to create a really warm atmospheric sound so there is a there is something oddly orchestral about the sound of that record even yeah. though of course it, it, it's completely uh, stark really this morning uh, we're talking to richard morton jack who's the author of a book called nick drake the life all about the, nick drake the artist well, you mentioned before about his producer the, he had a couple of pretty high profile fans who helped him record his material and who certainly helped kick his career on a little bit there didn't he, he had, had quite a few people helping him out yes uh, no one ever 
wasn't convinced by his talent. I don't think anyone who met him and saw him play or, or heard him um, performing his songs thought, well, this guy's okay, but he's a bit like someone else and he's a bit derivative. And I think he did have a very arresting quality. Um, personal charisma helped, but fundamentally his songs were, as you were saying, written in strange tunings. He had a distinctive way of playing the guitar, a very intricate and very confident, strong picking. And even his peers accepted that he was exceptional amongst them. Um, so as you say, people like John Martin and to, to name one subsequently you know, much revered figure, um, uh, gave and him John Cage as well. I mean, he's a fairly big name. I would have thought. Okay, yeah, John, sorry, John um, Cale. I meant to say. Yeah. Uh, yes, John Cale, absolutely, and, and and a lot of distinguished musicians, Richard Thompson from Fairport Convention, and and on and on, um, played on his records and held him in very high regard. But um, because Nick had this armour, this social sort of carapace, always. Um, I don't think he ever felt that he was part of a group of a peer group of musicians that brought each other on. He was always a bit self-contained and off on his own. Um, so there wasn't any camaraderie with other musicians. And, and it's a little bit frustrating the way that his music is, is it, it, there is so little of it. And I think if he had perhaps allowed himself to be more collaborative, it might have helped him find a, a, a pathway towards more music. Um, but, as we were saying earlier, yeah, his illness did come on at, at exactly the time when he was hoping mm. to expand into his career, and um, and and it really paralysed his whole social life, um, let alone his music. It's one of the things we've obviously been denied. Imagine that what a fourth album would have been like. It can only can only wonder really. Um, I've got a text here that yes. says, uh, what was and remains so unique to Nick's music, apart from uh, his finger-picking technique, is the detunings that he developed. I wrote and dedicated a song to him, had to throw the standard modal guitar ways out of the way, incredibly glad his music entered my life. It will never leave. Thank you, Nick. He's a bit like that. You know, if Nick Drake gets into your heart, <laughs> it's a bit hard to shake it. There's some wonderful songs and some wonderful lyrics too. I, I should just ask you before you head to the phones, what is it about his music do you think that is so appealing or has remained so appealing? Is it the words? Is it the way he picks his guitar? Is it just the passion with which he performs? I think it's the whole package. And I think fundamentally it seems quite intimate. So there's individual space for, for a listener to find their own relationship with it. And I don't think any two Nick fans would agree on what it is about his music that draws them to it or which the best songs are or which the worst songs are. I think everyone has their own version of him and their own quite passionate private relationship with his music, which you know, let's just say Led Zeppelin, most people like Led Zeppelin for the same reasons and they're very valid reasons and that makes listening to them a very communal experience. But I think with Nick, it's quite a private experience and, and, and as you were just saying, a lifelong one. It's quite unusual, I think, to say, well, I used to like him but I haven't listened to him in years and did those albums to death in my 20s and now I've moved on. I, mean, I think most people stick with Nick. Hmm. It's funny, yeah, it's, you know, certain music ages and other music doesn't. Why that is the case is a mystery to to me and to everybody, I think, Richard. But, you know, that's that's what we've got. And I suppose that's what separates the the uh, incredibly good songs from just the good songs. Uh, let's have a chat to George. G'day, George. 
Uh, good day, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, Richard, I, I actually requested uh, John Martin's song uh, "Solid Air," which was sort of about Nick Drake uh, one night on the program not so long ago, which uh, seemed to divide listeners. But because, uh, but it's a kind of a you know a swirly kind of uh, mysterious, enigmatic uh, piece, uh, sort of it's sort of almost untethered to reality, which is I think a bit like Nick was. But what I wanted to ask you about, I actually. Uh, saw a concert that about a, ooh, almost a decade ago, I think it was 2011, at the Concert Hall at Sydney Opera House, which was uh, Joe Boyd put on, which who was uh, the producer of uh, uh, Nick's record, very famous uh, British producer, did a lot of uh, folk artists, including Richard Thompson and a few of the others you mentioned. And uh, he got a whole bunch of singers to uh, do a lot of Nick's songs with a string section. And uh, you know, the lead singer was Critty Pallidi and Robin Hitchcock of the Egyptians, Lisa Hannigan, some very famous uh, indie artists who are all kind of big Nick Drake fans and uh, I had a chance to speak to him afterwards and uh, he actually said that uh, Nick, uh, which people might think, you know, Nick was interested in just staying underground and you know, just not being that well known and just being, you know, a bit of a cult artist, but uh, he actually said you know, one of the reasons uh, he got depressed was he actually wanted to be successful and he was very frustrated at the fact that, uh, you know, uh, people you know, as you said, he was getting gigs in the pretty inappropriate place, not getting, I think, the recognition he deserves. So I just wonder if you'd comment on that. And also, um, there's a few Nick Drake uh, local tribute nights here in Australia. He's got quite a big cult following. And I'm just wondering if there's any sort of more local kind of community uh, uh, sort of uh, tribute nights around the world. And mm. Are there any kind of Nick Drake hotspots around the world in particular, apart from <laughs> Australia, where he's, he's uh, you know, the legend still lives on, a bit like um, some of the same people put on Tim and Jeff Buckley tribute nights as well, those kind of... Uh, People again had short careers. Mm, great questions there, Richard. Yeah, thank you for those. Um, the first thing I, I'd, I'd like to say is, in response is is that I would be absolutely fascinated to speak to anyone from your part of the world. I'm I'm in London, um, England, who was a fan of Nick's during Nick's lifetime. Nick's albums were released in Australia. I've got the Australian reviews of them from one or two Aussie newspapers and magazines of the time. Um, and they're, they're pretty good reviews. The albums were pressed locally. So <clears throat> the album and you know, festival records, I know, sent out a biography with him, with, with the promo albums, which um, one or two of the journalists picked up on. And so I'd love to be in contact with someone who was actually interested in Nick in the at the time in Australia. Um, and I would have quoted such a person in my book if I'd been able to find them. Um, I did try. Um, someone told me that they'd seen his records in a shop in Tasmania back in the day, um, but never bought them, just saw them there. So Nick did have a presence down under um, yeah. well, uh, during George, his lifetime. Well, uh, George, George, when did you start listening to Nick, to Nick Drake? Um, well, I actually bought some of his albums in the late 70s, it would have been, I think. Uh, they were definitely in the record stores, and uh, um, unfortunately, uh, by that stage, I think they were in the remainder bins because, you know, he was never a big seller at the time. But uh, I know a lot of people, a bit like uh, Rodriguez, uh, Richard, you might not be aware, you know, after the Searching for Sugar Man, very famous documentary, won the Academy Award, um, you know, Rodriguez was well-known in Australia. In fact, he was touring here, even even though people thought he was dead in South Africa, which is a bit of a misnomer. And uh, uh, Nick Drake was a bit similar in the yeah. sense that, uh, no, you Rodriguez, know, Rodriguez he had a big presence here. In, what, sorry, what was that? Yeah, no, Rodriguez had records out on Blue Goose in Australia in the late 70s, and there was a Rodriguez 
greatest hits came yeah. out in Australia. So yeah, the, I think there was sympathy for for that sort of singer songwriter in Australia. And and I'd I'd be fascinated to talk to anyone who listened to both Nick and Rodriguez back in the day. I mean, that would be an amazing double. There's probably some crossover because, as you say, Rodriguez was much more popular in Australia than he probably was anywhere, even in South America, uh, South uh, Africa. But to answer your second question, um, Nick, yes, he did want to be successful. Joe and I share this perspective. People seem to be surprised that this fact um, yeah, has emerged or, or that Joe remembers this. But any artist in any field anywhere in human history really wants their work to be recognised, mm. wants people to respond to it. And it's part of how artists continue to create is by have feeling that they're not just working in a, in a vacuum. And, yeah, um, and you, su- you suggest that Nick Drake did actually go around and try to shop his music around and try to actively get gigs and stuff. So he's actually, you know, pr- at the start at least, was interested in promoting himself as an artist. However, however, a few years later, I believe, that after uh, Pink Moon, that he wasn't that keen to do any publicity at all for the for the promotion of the album. And would you think that? Well, I, I go back where I was. I mean, the, the, yeah, to, to, to where we, the, the, his mental illness came down on him like a steel curtain, really, right. over the course of 1970. So trying to unpick what he might have done had that not happened or whether that happened responsively to the failure of the records yeah. is really difficult. But yeah. I think fundamentally, Nick was told by his record company and by joe boyd his producer look you're too good to fail this is really exciting you're going to be the next big thing i don't think nick ever wanted to fly around on a private jet with sort of yeah. girls you know dripping off his arms that was that sort of rod stewart type stardom was never his plan or, or, or ambition but what he did definitely want was the validation of knowing that people were responding to his work yeah. and that his work was meaningful to them, that, that they were engaging with it. It wasn't so much having a hit record. It was just the sense that people were engaging with what he was offering. And yes, he wanted that very much, but also he needed to make a living. I mean, he didn't. Yeah, there's been a great exaggeration about the wealth of the Drake family. They were well to do people, but Nick's dad worked for a living. They weren't cushioned by family money nick had to make his own way in the world he had been privately educated at at some expense but that did mark him out enormously from a large number of his contemporaries nick needed to do something to earn his keep and he decided to pursue music and if he was going to pursue music he had to make a living at it and so yes he wanted to sell records but he found the business of going out there promoting them increasingly problematic and Mm. i think that conflict was was a large part of why he found you know increasingly found found difficulty relating to the world and i think he became a bit bitter that no one was buying his records but of course it was a chicken and the egg thing because without promoting them it was a great deal harder to get airplay and to get you know attention and as you say there were a lot of people pumping up his tires and uh, so he was constantly being told he was going to be the next big thing and so there would have been disappointment that came with you know that expectation that wasn't fulfilled there i would have thought i just george mentioned too about hot spots around the world are there nick drake hot spots i would say that most major cities where there is a thriving singer songwriter scene um nick's name is absolutely you know familiar and popular and open mic nights yeah you you're just as likely to hear a nick drake song there as a james taylor song or a Joni mitchell song hot spots i must admit i'm i'm not sure about but um i i, I wouldn't 
think there's any major city in the world these days where Nick's name is unfamiliar to um, to, to musos. It's only taken 50 years, but I think I agree with you. Uh, I've got a yes. couple, couple of questions here. Uh, uh, someone wants to know about, did, did Nick Drake, did he ever, ever had a girlfriend? There was sort of a bit of speculation about his sexuality and stuff. He was partly in a bit of a relationship, uh, but did, did he ever have a serious yeah, I girlfriend? Cover, I cover this... Um yeah, I cover this in, in my book in depth. So, um, yeah, if, if you're interested in that question, there, there's a you know, full answer in the book. But in short, yes, he had a girlfriend. He had a, a, a very um, lovely local to where he grew up girlfriend when he was 18 or 19. And they had um, a, a sweet but not particularly intense relationship. But for a year or two, they'd drift in and out of each other's lives and they'd go on dates and they'd see each other in London and they'd hang out and when he came home she'd be his girl if they went out to a nightclub and so on but it wasn't a serious commitment on either side um but she told me that the problem was that nick just uh never seemed to be 100 percent present so she never felt that he was necessarily committed to her and of course the longer any relationship goes on commitment is, is what you know is, is needed to keep things going and, and i think um they just drifted apart but but she remained a great support to him in his illness and, um, you know, carries his memory very dear to her still. Um, and, and she ended up marrying one of Nick's very greatest childhood friends, um, who, who was also a very great um, support to Nick. So, um, yes, Nick did have girlfriends and, and always found women easy to relate to, um, but they tended to be women who were spoken for. So Beverly Martin, John Martin's wife, or Sheila Wood, the engineer, John Wood's wife. That There's a bit of a list of women who Nick had quite close friendships with, but they weren't romantic. And I think the fact that they weren't sexually or romantically available um, was part of the appeal for Nick, because I think in his slightly fragile mental condition going through his 20s he didn't necessarily have the wherewithal to, to conduct a, a romance or a relationship so it was reassuring for him to have friendships quite intense friendships with women but without there being romance in the mix um, but i don't think he's gay simply because no one who knew him ever thought that or saw any grounds to speculate about it so it's an easy jump to to make and it's one of the ways as i was saying at the start of this where people have taken you know two and two and got five um but in the absence of evidence you know i think nick was straight but he was pretty mentally confused and never really in a position to have a serious adult romance or relationship so um that's left space for speculation I've got a text here from Sonia says, I'm totally unfamiliar with Nick Drake's music, but listening to this, I'm intrigued. Thanks, Sonia. Look, we'll try and play a bit of a Nick Cave song when we can. About four minutes away from the ABC News. Richard uh, wants to join us first. G'day, Richard. Oh, good morning. Um, Yeah, just a quick one. Um, I'm a huge Nick Drake fan, and I've often found that the orchestration uh, on a lot of his recordings is both frustrating and amazing and an amazing example is say um riverman which um i think the story goes that he had a young friend um actually orchestrate that song for him much against the studio's wishes and it's one of the most incredible pieces of music and on the other side uh i think there's a song called fruit tree that has flute all over it and in a sense, um, almost wrecks the song. So, yeah, it's, um, like I said, a double-edged sword. Yes, um, I, I get what you're saying, Richard. I, 
those songs were both arranged by the same friend of Nick's, actually. He was called Robert Kirby. They were friends at Cambridge University. They were both very young, 19 years old. Um, Nick knew that he wanted his songs to be arranged for orchestral instruments. So he sought a, a, a fellow student who would be able to do that. And someone put him in touch with Robert Kirby, who was a very gifted musician. And that was that collaboration. So although to your taste, um, they might sound a bit too dainty or overwrought or, or, or whatever it is. The fact is that they are what Nick wanted 100%. And um, indeed, on recordings that survive of them without the orchestrations, where the orchestrations sit, Nick just plays a very simple guitar part. There's no adaptation to indicate that he ever conceived anything other than strings and flutes and so on on those songs. Um, but Riverman, Robert Kirby did not arrange because he found it was beyond him and, and all credit to him. Instead of struggling and coming up with something second rate, he said, look, this is a little bit above my pay grade right now. So they <laughs> got in a very distinguished string arranger who knocked out uh, this, this wonderful string arrangement in no time at all. But that's um, being 30 years down the line, um, you know, you've got the experience and the, 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 the uh, know-how to, to do that. Yeah, look, uh, it's a fascinating chat. I've got Riverman lined up. We should maybe hear just a little bit of it to take us to the news. It's been fascinating chat. Look, I've got um, somebody wanted to say here, look, just captivated by this honouring of Nick Drake by your guest, who has clearly delved deep into his very being with a great appreciation and intelligence. I'm struck by Richard's sensitivity to the whole subject of an artist, 1970 mental illness, so refreshing to all this. Strength and fragility. So glad I can listen back to all this. That's from Catherine. We, I think that's a good well, way to, to wind it up. Yeah, I'm very grateful for those kind words. And, um, you know, I, I hope anyone who reads the book will feel that they've got to know Nick a bit better, but without jeopardising their fundamental, um, you know, love, love for his enigma, which is always going to be there. Nice work, Richard. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> 